0: This special edition of the SCTS Education Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Toolman, podcast founder and cardiothoracic registrar, coming from the SCTS Annual Meeting 2022. This took place in Belfast between the 8th and the 10th of May this year after quite a delay in having our face to face meetings. But what a conference it was! It was very well attended there was lots and lots of content. So I have endeavored to bring you some special behind the scenes footage with a range of speakers from across the conference. So first up is plenary speakers, uh, Prof Peter Brennan and Captain Niall Downey, who talked all about civility and human factors, giving us some great demonstrations. Uh, next up, after them, we have a conversation with Consultant Cardiac and Transplant Surgeon, Miss Karen Booth, who is also the lead for the Women in Cardiothoracic Surgery Working Group. So. We touch on some of the aims and objectives of the group, as well as touching on our own experiences and career paths. This is followed by a conversation with Mr. Alexander Brunelli, who is the current ESTS president. And he gave the WICS invited talk this year all about empathy. So we talk a little bit about uh, some discussion points from his presentation. After that, it's a turn for the medical students to take centre stage. And they were working throughout the conference, uh, doing various interviews, capturing their own experiences. So I've included the abridged version in here, but I will be um, putting out the full extended version, which will be available as a separate podcast. We then move on to some of our wider healthcare team members. And first up is Liz Darlinson who is a nurse consultant at University Hospitals Leicester, uh, as well as being Mesothelioma UK charity founder. She talks to us all about the journey of setting up Mesothelioma UK and gives us great insight how we can all work in our roles as an advocate for patients. Up next is consultant cardiologist, uh, Dr Laura Dobson, um, who is also the British Heart Valve Society Programme Chair. Uh, She gave an excellent presentation covering many aspects of endocarditis, particularly in some very challenging cases. And we touch on these as well as uh, the value of the heart team. I then have a chat with Matab, who is the field sales lead in BD Solutions, uh, which is the team that brings us Chloroprep. <laughs> so um, we just had a little bit of a chat about how it's been for industry over COVID with some uh, interesting insights then last but definitely not least, we have the physiotherapists who did an excellent talk in the IRAS symposium. Um, so there's Michelle Gibb, who is based in Leicester, and Zoe Barrett-Brown, who's based in Papworth, and they are having a chat with me about their extended roles and how this has led to improved patient outcomes. I then have some final thoughts and reflections on the meeting uh, from a range of people, starting off with Professor Richard Whitlock, who in fact was one of our invited speakers and came along uh, with his father. So we have uh, reflections from them. Uh, Then the ANP team at Liverpool telling us all about their highlights and things they'll be taking back to their own unit. And we finish off with some final thoughts from the exec team. So I hope you enjoy it. There's a lot packed in, but equally with a podcast, you can enjoy it at your leisure. And remember that all the videos of the sessions are now available um, on the SCTS annual meeting link that went out via email. I think it was about a week ago now. There are plenty of extra things that I wasn't able to uh, capture on the podcast, um, but make sure you check out the Hunterian lecture, some interesting points on cardioplegia there, and also some excellent presentations from patients, including one from the student nurse who uh, had to undergo thoracic surgery and I think that's within the clinical decisions session on the university day. So enjoy! Hello, and here I am at the SCTS annual meeting, uh, and I have two excellent guests with me here, who are both part of the plenary session today. So I have Captain Niall Downey, who is an airline pilot for Air Lingus, I believe. I, I'm hoping I've got that right because you gave me some clues, <laughs> as well as previously um, working cardiothoracic surgery, and I understand as well A and and a whole load of things that then you were doing as well as training for your pilot's license and then becoming a professional pilot. Is that Right.
1: Well, I was actually doing A&E after I qualified as a oh. pilot, because uh, we had a bit more time available than I was used to having as a pilot surgeon, so I tended to work maybe one or two days uh, every few weeks just doing uh, A&E shifts, uh, so I would do shifts uh, mainly up here in Belfast actually, just uh, units that I was used to being in, so I said did that for about six years uh, while I was working as a pilot, and then our hours started increasing, we started having children and time ran out. <laughs>
2: there
0: you go, so... My goodness, it sounds like a, a busy lifestyle for sure, though, in that time period. Yes, in general, in general. And um, Professor Peter Brennan, who is a maxofacial surgeon down in Plymouth, I think, isn't it? Have I got it right or was it Portsmouth? No, Portsmouth. Portsmouth, oh, I always get the two mixed up. I was well, like, no. that, that, that opens up
3: something straight away, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? Because we make, as humans, we make about five to seven mistakes every single day. There you go. So maybe something simple like, like this. So
0: <laughs> error, error is
3: normal, basically. Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. It's normal. Unembarrassing, but normal. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Professor Brennan's also got a PhD um, in human factors and particularly in their application related to surgical in the surgical environment um, and there's been a lot of translational work yeah. you've done with the aviation industry yes. and linking some of the concepts that have been developed within there um, and to the and
3: lowering hierarchy yeah. and lowering gradients so please call me Peter the Professor Brennan thing <laughs> yeah. instantly creates a steep hierarchy which we don't you know, which is just not necessary we don't
0: need and the really interesting thing I've always found is I find it very difficult actually to lower those hierarchies myself. So I remember I remember when I because I emailed Professor Peter Brennan, thank Peter, Peter, we we're, um, we're previously <laughs> with my the Human Factors podcast we did, which is really popular. I got some um, really good feedback from oh, that from you. my colleagues, then. Um, and and uh, and I remember emailing you and you were like, "Call me Peter," and I'm like. Professor Brennan forward slash Peter. <laughs> you know, I really, and I was interested in my internally at uh, how much I kind of struggle with that. And I think that's that's an interesting thing as a, as, a, you know, as a surgical trainee, as a junior, and I, I suspect I'm, I'm not the only one who, who probably has struggled with that in the past. But well, the other thing is, is,
3: that, is that for you, you see, then, for you to a medical student, uh, it's, a, it's a similar uh, analogy, and, mm. and certainly I know a lot of um, doctors and trainees that will will be doctor or mister or miss... To their medical students, and um, again, I mean, I think, I think yes, there has to be a hierarchy, of course, um, but actually lowering it so that people are then feeling valued, empowered, teamwork, and everything so much improved.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I have to say, it, it's interesting when it when I do encounter it in the other direction, and um, when there's a, a medical student or even like one of the nurses or something, and they're like, oh "Miss and I'm like, "Really, don't call me Miss Tulan. <laughs> it's yeah. Caroline," you know, and and I think that's um, that's that's oh, it's it's kind of interesting, you know. You kind of have to think about it in both directions, and and understand that there's a point where you always feel like you're one person, but actually, as you go through the system, you sort of attach labels, or you know, due to your rank or whatever you're doing, and and that that has an impact on how other people see you that you may not perceive because it's so insidious how it how it all occurs. I think context is very important. So when I was in the Royal
1: Victoria here in Belfast, I've seen patients be up. I used to introduce myself as Niall, one of the cardiac surgeons. Uh, one of the patients' events one day said, so listen, uh, tomorrow you're going to be sewing my chest open. I don't want Niall sewing my chest open. I want Mr. Yeah. Downey doing this. Yeah. So it was an interesting sort of approach that uh, people expect different things in different scenarios.
0: It's true. And it's, and different people
1: mm.
0: want different things as different well. Uh, yeah, exactly. They deserve sure.
3: the right to change their mind. Uh, yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. And I so guess that's, so that's another good thing. So I, I always huh. introduce myself both to, both to staff and to patients. Mm. Uh, and I just use my name, so I just say, I'm Peter Brennan, and then that gives them the opportunity, they can either say, hello Peter, or Professor, or whatever they want, you know, uh, a derogatory term maybe as well, but, um, um, you know, that, that so, you're, so you're giving it over to them and what they feel comfortable with, I think that's uh, key, yeah.
0: Well, here you've been given a plenary session really all about civility um, or focusing on civility but also concentrating on some of the other human factors elements as well that affect our performance. But the primary sort of focus, particularly in the beginning, is is about civility. And a lot of that is on the background of things that we found in cardiothoracic surgery which are not surprising necessarily but are being brought to life uh, and being brought to light, I should say, really. um, Which is about the fact that there is evidence of incivility, there's evidence of, of harassment and bullying and these are things that we have to face as a specialty and I think this is not just a problem for cardiac surgery or thoracic surgery, it's a you know, it's a wider problem within lots of fields of medicine surgery and in, in general, exactly. Um, so uh, the positive thing is it's being looked at and also being addressed and also being normalised that it ain't normal, <laughs> which I think is, is key. Um, and there were a couple of things that you were mentioning today and one of them was about how performance is reduced by the effects of incivility by up to 50%. Um, And I wondered how that sort of has been measured, where those sorts of figures have have come from.
1: There's a a paper I actually put on Twitter last week. uh, I think it was in the B&J for Quality and Safety about two or three years ago. Um, It was a a simulation study. Uh, We we simulated uh, an emergency developing in theatre and then measured the response of the and they found that uh, when, when the surgeon was being mannerly uh, the anesis had a, a, an excellent performance at about 90% of the time uh, when the surgeon started shouting and was rude and incivil to them uh, the anesis performance dropped to about 60% uh, that was a simulated environment obviously and I don't know if it's I think sort of correct to be able to do that in the real world, but mm-hmm. there's various studies that show that uh, the numbers drop, and even common sense. You know, somebody shouts at you, you're not performing at your
3: best. You going the fight or flight response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I think that was published 2019. I can't remember the exact um, author name, but um, yeah. But there's there's lots of other studies that that really mirror that, and um, and I guess I guess you know making it personal. And how do you feel when when someone shouts at you, or or is into how do you feel? You kind of you kind of in You go onto the back foot. You you use up a lot of what's called bandwidth, so you can only think of five to seven things at once. And if you if you if someone's in civil or shouting at you, that occupies so much of that bandwidth that you then your other other things you're trying to do, your operating or your clinics or your decision making uh, suffers as a consequence. It's, um, Uh, obvious really but but sadly uh, as as with much of this human factor so civility things we we just don't think about it.
0: Yeah and a lot of that is to do with sort of um, working memory I think that once you are occupied by something emotional you get this emotional hijacking and your working memory just just drops like a stone Um, and ultimately a lot of this the other thing I've written down here is a lot of it is about maintaining concentration because a lot of what we're trying to do in theatre is work together and also make sure that we're concentrating on the job at hand rather than being a distracted which is a, another thing that you highlighted as a as a major issue um, and uh, and obviously if, if there's instability then that's a big distraction and also it's affecting everybody's concentration levels to a certain extent
3: um, so intense concentration I think the limits 20 minutes to half an hour if you're if you're you know, task focused, intensely concentrated, and then you will then start start to drift. Um, and I guess a good example of that as well is sit, sitting in an hour long lecture. People remember the start of the lecture and the end, and then in the middle everything seems a bit of a daze as they as they wander off, they fall asleep. You know, that's, and that's what happens. So, nice and Microsoft did studies a few years ago that if you're in intense
1: concentration, it's broken. It takes 10 to 15 minutes to get back to the same level of concentration. Mm. Mm. So if you're doing a, a difficult case in theatre and you get interrupted like two or three times an hour, it means you basically never reach your optimum performance. Yeah. So you get operating with one hand tied behind your back already.
0: Yeah. And, and I suppose, and one of the things I, I still, I think I still kind of struggle with to get my head around is a little bit like the tunnel vision versus situational awareness, because in theatre sometimes you can become very tunnel visioned and focused on exactly what you're doing which is, and, and, and have a lack of awareness of what's going on because you're so focused but yet it's important to have situations situational awareness and I think when I wrote something down about this it, like situational awareness is also about thinking ahead and knowing what yeah, you're planning yeah, yeah. so it's not necessarily you're allowed to kind of be concentrating on something but it's also recognising that there is co- there, that what's going to come next and what you need yeah. to be planning and mentally aware of yeah. for next
3: yeah so the thinking mm-hmm. ahead is, uh, is part of threat and error management mm-hmm. um, and that, that's a whole other area where we could spend hours talking about mm-hmm. um, I mean I mean, yes um, tunnel vision yes, um, task focus and I think my answer to that would be uh, getting the whole of the rest of the team to be looking out for you which you then empower them at the team briefing and if something doesn't seem quite right or if if you think I'm slowing up or if I'm not doing so, please just stop me and please tell me Um, so you might you might have that ton of issue but your your wider team around you keeping a really good uh, situation yeah. awareness of everything that's going on. Yeah. So, as a of the classic, the way.
1: Drastic, that these probably get better situation awareness than you do. Mm-hmm. They've more time to sort of look around the room and mm-hmm. see the overall picture. Yeah. Your technicians that mm-hmm. have more time to sort of take in the overall picture and see what's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, of course, if you're focused, the, the, the peripheral perception, it's, it's, it's Yeah,
0: so it's that same idea of the the team being your safety net essentially yeah. in this, and they are your your situational awareness when you have not got the ability to be that Um, this is where
3: this is where the incivility um, Mm -hmm. uh, comes in because if you're you're incivil to the team or you're rude to the team they they almost almost want you to make a mistake that's human nature you know they resent you yes they have to work with you but but they don't really want to look out for you Mm -hmm. so all of these things i i kind of see it a bit a, a bit like a balloon so you, you've actually got a balloon. When you press on one part of the balloon, another part expands. So, so human practice is almost like that balloon envelope. Yeah. And you have to understand all, all of those things working together. Um, civility its just um, essential.
0: Yeah, there was one word that you used that I thought was really interesting, and that was retribution. And that just struck me, because I thought, that is what it, that is what people are nervous of, you know? That you have a whole series of you know incivil situations, and then what is the retribution? And what if you flag it up, and I think this is what has happened in the bullying and harassment questionnaire, people, and I, I'm sure, know that people will have been nervous about filling that in because they will have been worried about the retribution side of it and I guess that also the thing I read very nicely that is power imbalance yes. um, and, and that those two things kind of go hand in hand and possibly I, I'm not sure how to address those things but you know that really just culture mm. uh, in
1: aviation the guy, I've been trying to get across for 10 years now that the, the, what we have different to healthcare is the just culture people talk about a no blame culture now, aviation doesn't have a no blame culture If I do something badly wrong, I will be blamed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but if I put my hand up, admit it, and then uh, get involved in investigating what actually went wrong, Mm -hmm. uh, it's written into uh, European law actually that there will be no retribution and no repercussions for me, there will be no chance of me losing my job, Mm -hmm. no chance of any sort of long-term sort of, uh, detriment of my career prospects. Mm-hmm. So that if I do make a mistake, I have no issues with putting my hand up and saying I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the company's action is going to be, well, you've done this, this same type of flight thousands of times, and you made a mess of it today. Mm-hmm. So we know you can do it, so it's mm-hmm. not you. Mm-hmm. So what happened today? Mm-hmm. So we then look at what went wrong nothing went wrong. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the big difference for us, is we don't run for retribution or repercussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go for a systems approach. There's obviously something in the system today was a tripwire that we weren't aware was there that you fell over today mm-hmm. so we now try and re-engineer the system to take that tripwire out mm-hmm. and if possible building safety nets as well mm-hmm. so that, that's the concept I've been trying to build into healthcare for about 10 years now
3: no offense you've been a hard sell
0: oh yeah <laughs> I mean, I, it, absolutely
3: I think it's probably worth emphasizing that you know a just culture uh, most of us the vast majority of us go to work not with the intention of causing harm or mm-hmm. uh, an issue and there are very very few minorities the shipments yeah. and so on um, so so everyone is accountable for his or her actions yes, but m- most errors most most issues are multifactorial non as you as yeah. you've said and um, you know empowering the team to speak up if they have any concerns without that retribution and that mm-hmm. 's what I said in the talk and, um, you know so that so that they know if they say something and actually it turns out to be um, a silly comment, let's say, mm-hmm. then you say, well, yes, thank you for the comment, yeah, I mm-hmm. appreciate that, the answer is this something, the other. Um, they will go away and think about it, rather than saying, you stupid idiot, why did you say that? Mm-hmm. And then they're going to be less likely to um, to speak up again when perhaps mm-hmm. there is a serious issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nice
3: when you mentioned like, the of case. Uh, just Culture
1: is very clear that it doesn't cover things like that. Yeah. Uh, just Culture covers genuine mistakes. Yeah. It doesn't cover deliberate harm mm-hmm. or gross negligence. Mm-hmm. So if I do something so blatantly wrong mm-hmm. that uh, like a junior pilot in the company shouldn't be doing this, mm-hmm. I will be held responsible for that because Just Culture doesn't cover this. Yes. I mean, there's, there's a level of confidence assuming as well.
0: Yes, yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's yeah you know, we all know when we when we're doing something we're training for something we have a level of responsibility and and that's that's kind of something that we a, a level of professionalism um, and uh, and I suppose that's all incorporated Within the, the just culture, if you're maintaining those standards, then mm-hmm. hopefully you're maintaining. But when you're
1: maintaining those standards, you can yeah. still have a genuine mistake. Exactly. For that and that's what just culture is there for. Exactly. And that's why the aviation industry has been so spectacularly successful in improving safety.
2: Yeah.
1: And there's no reason why the same concept wouldn't be applied to healthcare. Now, mm-hmm. as, as Peter said earlier, they're two totally different industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, learn, we can't take our, our sort of mm-hmm. just culture books and transmit it, or transplant it directly in mm-hmm. because uh, it's not a good tissue mice so it gets rejected. Mm-hmm. But
3: the underlying DNA is very similar, mm-hmm. so genetically engineered into healthcare, mm-hmm. that's what I can try and achieve. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess that's, uh, in some respects, is, is, is given human factors and things a bit of a bad name because mm-hmm. people say, oh here you are, you're comparing aviation to surgery or cardiac surgery. It's like, no, 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 we've never said that. You're, um, the, the underlying factor is the human, yeah. you know, the human factors, it's the human, the clues in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, the DNA is very similar. But, but slightly different systems
0: about yeah. well, these mm-hmm. Um But yeah. yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me and having this uh-huh. chat afterwards as well. I really appreciate right. it. <laughs> so uh, here we are at the annual meeting uh, for SCTS uh, 2022, and I have with me uh, Miss Karen Booth, who is not only cardiothoracic surgeon. Supremo, including transplantation and aortic surgery, but also the head of the Women in Cardiothoracic Surgery uh, Working Group, which was set up, uh, I think it was last year officially, that's Um, that's when the committee was first set up. So um, in this capacity, we're going to have a chat about being a woman in cardiothoracic surgery, as well as sort of what brought you into cardiothoracic surgery, maybe a little bit about uh, your career path, um, and uh, yeah, and we'll go from there. Oh
4: Caroline, thanks for having me, yeah, well I'm delighted to be here.
0: Uh, So what was it going all the way back which I know feels like a while now but what was it that sort of sparked your interest in cardiothoracic surgery to begin with
4: well I really was probably quite different to everyone else as I wanted to be an A&E consultant mm-hmm. and did from day dot mm-hmm. um and then I got into f1 and F2 and had it all mm-hmm. streamed mm-hmm. wise so I had Four months each of anesthesia mm-hmm. surgery medicine but also paid jobs again and psych ah, and it was my time in surgery actually so I was doing the anesthetics after the uh, surgery block mm-hmm. I was putting people to sleep and I got into a theater environment and I have to say at medical school I didn't find theaters or surgery that encouraging mm-hmm. um, and when I got in access to theater and I was treated with a little bit of respect because mm-hmm. I put the patient to sleep mm-hmm. and they were able to have a conversation with me that I realized actually was quite fascinated with what went on on the other side of the table mm-hmm. and I realized that actually it was all the clinical skills in ANE and that I was interested in so it was the resuscitation the central lines being able to take people at the extremes of life and resuscitate them that I was most interested in mm-hmm. and actually where did that go as a consultant because I felt a lot of those skills had been completed by the time of registrar training mm-hmm. so from there I thought well actually maybe surgery is the way to go mm-hmm. and cardiothoracic surgery was recommended in terms of skill set that mm-hmm. if you could do cardiothoracic surgery actually then you can transfer a lot of those skills and you got a lot of those skills early on in terms so it was a very definitive I'm going to go into surgery at the end of F1 and I'll choose cardiothoracics because it's going to teach me a skill set and I arrived and just loved it Yay. I never wanted to leave so I had no background to it at all. As a matter of fact yeah. in medical school we were all told that there would be no place for cardiothoracic surgery yeah. because PCI was going to outlive cardiac surgery and we were going to have radiotherapy we take over lung cancer mm-hmm. so it's very much given a very dim view of cardiothoracic as a specialty but yeah. yet it's where I ended up.
2: Yeah,
0: I, I remember very vividly being sat in medical school in the first year, and them telling us that we were all going to become GPs. That's um, so yeah, <laughs> and I, I very much had this sort of feeling of that's. Kind of not where I want to end up, not because it's bad or anything like that, but just as it didn't feel right to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I remember that thinking, "Am I in the wrong room? Like, what's what's going on?" But uh, yeah, it's really interesting. So it was actually kind of an interest in in sort of pra- the practicalities the, and the handling of hemodynamics, which really kind of attracted your attention in That's the first it. place. Um, and then cardiothoracics I think I think it's very worthwhile. To, I mean, I was quite similar in that I did quite a lot of stuff before I sort of settled firmly on cardiothoracics and that was as well because I was very aware of, of some of the lifestyle elements of it and I thought I need to make sure I want to do this you know because there's a lot of things you have to think about um, when you're choosing a specialty but I wanted to be sure and, and I think it does it does add value to have done all those things um, totally yeah and, and particularly um, it adds value in terms of intensive care management and how sort of familiar you are with some of the changes you see fantastic so then you uh, went into cardiothoracic yes, training right.
4: <laughs> so then I had a yeah. very short time period to get ready yes. for cardiothoracic yes. ST3 yeah. and was very worried about not having audits and research appropriate to mm-hmm. cardiothoracic surgery and what like I was going to turn up with nothing linked to cardiothoracic surgery but would mm-hmm. I be appropriate mm-hmm. uh, and so it was very Stress for a long time Mm -hmm. until I got the interview and got my NTN number but then realised that actually it's about the attributes that you are as a person Mm -hmm. and a doctor that they're looking for Mm -hmm. and not it doesn't all have to fall within the cardiothoracic remit Mm -hmm. but it was the first year of national ST3 appointment so I had no help in terms of no one had been through it before we had always appointed NTNs regionally in Northern Ireland and so I was the first guinea pig to go out and give it a go
0: yeah oh gosh and and how did the that feel and actually just on the subject of women in cardiothoracic surgery yeah. how many women were there also applying at the same time as you just out of interest
4: so that's a really good question mm. at the interview maybe I'm going to hazard a guess here so there's I think there was 40 of us interviewed for 24 positions and there might have been two or three of us yeah yeah I would say I know certainly from even if I've been applying locally there never had been a female surgeon yeah. and there was no one else interested in training in it mm. um so I was certainly on my own from that. So it wasn't, that didn't feel that alien to me when I got over there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just was a bit strange. I felt like everyone across the waters it was for me was a bit more prepared Mm -hmm. because they knew a little bit more about what the national selection process would be like yeah i had no idea how many days it would be or what would be involved in it. it was all brand new when i
2: arrived
0: yes yeah it it can definitely feel a bit like that i think with all of these things i yeah i remember feeling like everybody else everybody else would have more experience and more knowledge and <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah absolutely and uh, when i arrived
4: at the interview it was very much like oh that's okay you can have the northern ireland numbers yeah <laughs> as long as that's off all you, your address off you in. go <laughs>
0: off you go yeah absolutely oh brilliant so um in terms of your training you you then obviously have chosen to do both transplant and aortic so that's that's uh, that's a lot to be doing and were you exposed to all of that within your training or did you get into that post training as well
4: so at the national selection interview process we got told they'd found an extra number and that they were suddenly going to have um, a rotation that became Northern Ireland and the northeast of England. So I had no intention really of ever seeing transplant unless it was going to be on a fellowship mm-hmm. but all of a sudden my opportunity was four years of Belfast mm-hmm. and two years of the North East mm-hmm. so it seemed to me that it would be really remiss of me to not see transplantation in my training. Mm-hmm. So when I came across for those two years and I spent six months in retrieval and transplantation and then 18 months in aortic surgery with Professor Dork yes. and alongside that then once you get the bug for transplantation a bit like yeah. once I got the bug for cardiothoracic surgery yeah. you can't really let it go
0: yeah yeah. oh well I mean I, I know how um, intense both of those elements of cardiac surgery are and to combine them and to combine them you know in training and then in the career I think it's really admirable and, and for sure is going to be challenging as well um, in terms of on-call commitments and all the calls you're going to get out of hours yeah, that's right. but at the same time the, the skill level, and um, I think it really must give you a great familiarity. You must really know your way around the heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs>
4: yeah. That is what I was. So, mm-hmm. when I first arrived, I had seen all of adult cardiac surgery, but nothing really of transplantation, mm-hmm. and that was what was said to me. I mm-hmm. so would bring patients in. I remember one patient at the patient clinic, and they were actually a previous pneumonectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had survived for 15 years and now had severe MR and mitral valve disease. Mm. And I remember taking it in to John in the consultation room and I said, think this is going to be impossible, you're never going to get access, it's going to be completely different, the heart was completely shifted over. And he said, ah, but you're not a transplant surgeon. And all we're going to do is we're going to transect the a or to transect the PA and we'll be right on the roof of the left atrium, Karen, and then the mitral valve will be right in front of us. And I thought, well, okay. <laughs> well, if it's that easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a completely different perspective yes. and mindset, I guess, yeah. when you've removed an organ and put it back in, yeah. you see anatomy in a completely different frame of reference to yeah.
0: and then and there's a confidence in what you can repair as well. Uh, and I think particularly when it comes to i mean like pulmonary arteries and pulmonary veins and you know, yes. atrial cuffs and things i, th- I think as that's, that's that's a useful confidence to have to have i think for, yes, for I anyone yeah um and so you know now to the present day and your current role as sort of a lead in terms of women in cardiothoracic surgery what was it that made you think i'd like to take on this role because it's a it's a challenging role we're not like a majority <laughs> and yeah. you know uh, and and it's recent that's the other thing this is you know in, in other areas yes there's women in cardio in, in women in sorry women in surgery which I know Farabati is very strongly involved in, um, uh, in with the Royal College um, and and there is this, I think Society of Thoracic Surgeons in America have got their own group of sort of women in thoracic surgery there um, so actually we're a little late to the party. We
4: are, we are. Yeah. and are we are we also a little bit guilty I think I was to a lot of the women that work in cardiothoracic surgery at consultant level and we're all a little bit guilty of we didn't want to just champion women for women mm-hmm. and i think it's there's always this conflict of a what does being a woman in any field mean and mm-hmm. why is it special and mm-hmm. you're automatically excluding 50 percent and it's taken it actually took me to become a consultant so i never attended women in surgery as a trainee mm-hmm. i confess that or mm-hmm. never never participated i would and if i did work experience, where I was helping people, it was equal. There never was a preference for just helping girls get mm-hmm. through. But actually it was only when I became a consultant that I realised that some of the challenges really are there, they exist. Um, and I think I felt as a trainee that actually it didn't ever really come at me in any specific shape or form that it was going to be difficult. I was always treated the way I was because I was confident to do things. Mm. But then when I became a consultant, I realised that actually sometimes you know, if you're seen as a threat, they will look for things mm. to really tackle things. And I realise mm. actually there is, does need to be support. But more than that, it's just a bit lonely.
2: Mm. You
4: know, as I think as a Red there's a lot of great camaraderie and you're all in it together. But mm-hmm. when you become a consultant, that kind of disappears. And there's yep. just nobody to chat to, Garlite. There's mm-hmm. nobody to just talk about things that only we can understand or mm. we can get. But I think that if you talk about them, they can seem petty but they're not there are lots of little things that happen on a day to day basis that the men in our specialty just don't face and so they just don't know what it's like and I think it's that glass ceiling isn't it so if you're standing above it if it's glass, you look mm-hmm. down, they don't see it. They're not yeah. aware that actually you're treated differently at an MDT, you're treated differently by patients. Mm-hmm. And actually it's a little bit harder for people to just assume that you will be competent Yeah, compared to your male counterpart who will just, there will be a natural assumption there that is not there for us. So I realised that actually somebody needed to champion that and help and support. We don't just need more numbers, we need quality as well. So we need people to be in leadership positions. We need women to be recognised actually... They don't need to overstretch just to prove that they can be at the same level as their male counterparts. So somebody needed to take that on and I recognised that it actually was really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was actually a group of women that met for many years and I had been invited to that group um, so I knew that it was something that we were all interested in mm-hmm. but it was just how do we take that forward.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that's one of the things there's so much in the way of unconscious bias that is it, it oh, just makes bad. things that if you're not faced with it, you don't even realise it's there, um, and and I've noticed that even within myself. That's the other thing I've oh, thought, that's true. Yeah, that that's I thought is that I is that it's the kind of unconscious biases that I have even myself about it. And for for an example of that would be when I was an F two and I was actually thinking about doing surgery, which was you know I was like oh I thought I discounted that option after holding a whole load of laparoscopic cameras when I was in my final <laughs> year of medical school, and I decided no thanks. <laughs> and then I was like oh actually I really do like this. Um, and I remember speaking to my um, educational supervisor at the time and saying I, th- I think I might want to do surgery and and he and I said but I'm not like Mr, I'm just going to say X but I'm not like Mr X and, and he was like you don't have to be like Mr X to be a surgeon Caroline and I think that was the first time that I really realised that I didn't without actually without and I in fact it's only it's taken years of me like kind of thinking and I just thought crikey yeah I said that clearly that was something in my mind that I hadn't even realized I had internalized and I think that's one of the things that as women I suspect I'm not alone in that and when you don't even realize that your brain is telling you you're not really, because you don't fit this, this stereotype that has been developed, then that's an extra hurdle you've got to overcome yourself at every single point of application of, exam, of of seeing a patient every day. You know, so that, I think, is something that I know I've had to deal with, and I suspect that there will be a proportion of people who will feel the same, this kind of internalised aspect of it. Um, and so if that's me, then goodness knows what well, it's like, you know, like for other people, you know, and particularly male colleagues who never really, like, may not see it as an issue they don't think they've got an issue you know uh, well you know uh,
4: it's it's little tiny things isn't it Mm -hmm. so you know i remember being the registrar doing the ward round Mm -hmm. and um one of the male consultants would be coming in and you'd see all the patients like especially the women would get out, get their lipstick on Mm -hmm. sit in the chair they'd be so excited to see the professor of cardiac surgery coming Mm -hmm. to do the ward round uh and you know that isn't necessarily the reception that everybody gets so i think it's it's recognizing that you know you they will not understand that because mm-hmm. it's not the way they've been treated. And mm-hmm. so there's a, a natural respect that will come for some yeah. that just doesn't come for others. And so yeah. I realise actually it's a wee bit of a battle internally as mm-hmm. well, but also that we need to just make it more of the norm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so what are we trying to do with uh, with women in cardiology? so And it's WICTS, isn't it?
4: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> W-I-C-T. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and so what are we trying to achieve with that particular, with that particular society or that group? within the society
4: so it's recognition that not a lot has changed Mm -hmm. that we still sit with less than 14% of our consultants being women Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not where we sit at the trainee level Mm -hmm. so we need to recognize what happens to those trainees where do they drop out Mm -hmm. and why Mm -hmm. why are we have we been at 50% female admissions to medical school Mm -hmm. for over 30 years but we have never seen that translate Into consultant positions. Mm -hmm. Why is it that some specialties are 50% female consultants and some are not? Mm -hmm. So we're one of the poorer specialties, and it's not because we don't have skilled women to do it, Mm -hmm. but something is happening along the way, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is even worse that people get into an NTM position and still don't make it out at the other end. Mm -hmm. What is happening along there to those people? And we need to understand as a specialty what is going wrong, Mm -hmm. and we need to recognize that it's not just about it being an on-trend thing, mm. you know, like it, yeah. you know that, we, yeah. that it's acceptable to say it now, but it's mm. more about actually, it improves patient care. The yeah. better the diverse the consultant body is, the mm-hmm. better the patients will do, the better the staff will do, the better the department will do. So mm-hmm. it's recognition that is actually important. And that's for all minority groups, whether that be gender, whether that, you know, be race, whether mm-hmm. that be religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, connoti- so it's about accepting that actually we need that diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're really here to link that to the executive team at SCTS mm-hmm. to produce the data to highlight the issues mm-hmm. and then to try and come up with a few resources or a few strands of work that might support or help. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite keen that that's not all resilience building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really keen that it's not that we say that women need to be stronger or do better Mm. but that we say that we accept within workplaces that there's a problem and we need to highlight what those are and educate people and we really need some champions to get on board in there we have some amazing fantastic male colleagues who Mm -hmm. already do this and really champion and support but actually highlighting who they are and what they do differently Mm -hmm. i think would be really important work strength for Wix to do
0: yeah yeah well that sounds really really great and i think it's it's we've got some fantastic people on the committee and hopefully I'll get to speak to them as well um, and uh, and and just having the, ex, you know, sharing the experience and the backgrounds that everybody's coming from um, and just that, that there's a group of people who are approachable and That's who, it. if people have questions that they want to ask or like about anything really, you know, There is a group of people who can hopefully answer an an extra resource pool.
4: Yeah, (laughs) no, I I totally like. I think it would be really nice that we're seen that way. Mm. That that there's no way that I'm going to try and say that we understand what everybody faces, Mm -hmm. or that we can prescribe something that will fix it in the next Mm -hmm. five years. But certainly, I think it's an opportunity for women to support women because that was the thing that struck me when I became a consultant was we're really bad at supporting Mm -hmm. one another, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that needs to change a little bit we need to recognize actually we need to help one another to Mm -hmm. get in and stay in and and to be strong when we're there so Mm -hmm. I'd really like I mean, we have emailed out before and got a fantastic response Mm -hmm. if anyone has any ideas we have got a suggestion box here at Mm -hmm. SCTS we're happy to take emails we've got our own email Mm -hmm. account we've got a Twitter account now Mm -hmm. we will try and improve our presence on the scene so people know who we are Mm -hmm. and then we will try and provide whatever resources it is that people feel should be helpful
0: well thank you so much for coming and speaking to Thank me for... and uh, and we we'll are looking. i'm really looking forward to um, tomorrow's presentation as well
4: yeah. oh absolutely yeah. well this is this this is our big mm-hmm. mantra at the minute is about professionalism and about mm-hmm. like civility in the workplace mm-hmm. and its impact on patient outcomes and that's mm-hmm. one of the big pieces of works that wix has been working with wix society for the last couple of years so mm-hmm. we're big uh, proponents of that that if we have those professional standards improved actually the workplace for women will become a better place yeah. to be yeah
0: well i think i think and that just shows you yet yeah, the better the workplaces women the better the workplaces for everybody it's all it really is better for everybody that's what we're aiming for thank you so much um for joining me and yeah i look forward to seeing what comes next from wits thanks caroline Well, we're here at the annual meeting today and um, I just want to introduce our speaker from the WICS session this morning uh, Mr Alex Brunelli who is a consultant thoracic surgeon up in Leeds and he gave a fantastic talk this morning all about the importance of empathy uh, in terms of our, how we behave as surgeons but also most importantly how we behave towards our patients in particular. And I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in this topic? Because it's not, it's not, you know, it's not the first thing that people come to. We all come to these meetings and we're talking a lot about the technical side of things. We're talking about outcomes, etc. And, and what got you involved and interested in the, the sort of subjective? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
5: Thank you very much. No, it, it's, uh, probably, probably it's my age. <laughs> um, because I spent all my professional life... Uh, um, and, uh, Focused on risk models, mm-hmm. uh, how to predict the risk of complications uh, and outcome uh, in, in, in patients, in surgical patients. Uh, uh, and I always focus my clinical research on, um, uh, you know, around patients, you mm-hmm. know, their, their quality of life after surgery, um, their recovery after surgery, the outcome. Uh, and and I'm realizing at some point that. Um, no matter how good we are in developing model biological risk models, but the, their prediction is always moderate at mm-hmm. best. Mm-hmm. And, and so there must be something else that we miss. And, and then, you know, I started to, to actually listen to patients and, uh, and listen to uh, perhaps our um, counselors mm-hmm. uh, Specialist talking to patients, and patients say, "Well, you know, actually, uh, I was rushed uh, through the uh, meeting with the surgeon, uh, and uh, I was not feeling comfortable. You know, I was not entirely connected with the surgeon, So I thought, yeah, but there is something that, mm-hmm. that we need to improve. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I started to, you know, go into this empathy." aspect uh, which obviously is a, is, a, is a huge word and, and uh, empathy is towards our patient is you know, uh, in the team mm-hmm. and to uh, also self empathy yeah. Yeah. which is another which I think is actually the base the basis you know, because if we are, if we are not uh, kind to ourselves. Then difficult to, to be kind to someone else. Yeah. But but and then you know this is how it started. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, and, and then try to uh, uh, collect as much information as I could. There is there is a lot of information out there in the in the, in the literature in the, in the web. Um, and and uh, also I try to um, assess um, the, the element these elements. Uh, compounding the empathy concept uh, in the real um, clinical scenario, you know, in my practice, with, with the especially in the first encounter with patients. So, uh, and this is how it started.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought, I, and it's really interesting what you say about having empathy towards ourselves as well. And there was a couple of things that I wrote down because I thought this is really interesting. So, one of them was about managing our own emotion and emotional contagion and I think I haven't heard that many people talk as honestly as you have about the experience of how something some negative information that you might receive can then impact you within that period of time and we see it all the time. It's all around us, and not just in surgery, but every part of medicine. And whether it's something as simple as you've got some frustrating news from the admin staff about something, or whether it's something that really cuts deep when you find that there's a patient who's had a complication or something, and then you've got to find a way of packaging it, and getting on with your day and understanding how to do that and I don't think we actually have addressed that fully. I suspect that's one of our problems in surgery actually is that we don't really know how to manage that. You learn it as you go along but maybe that's not the best way of doing it.
5: Yeah, no, I agree and I think it's not, it's not, also, it's not fully appreciated and uh, um, by 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 administrators, managers, mm-hmm. uh, or even either even colleagues. Mm-hmm. Although you know, we have always been there at some mm-hmm. point, uh, and we try to manage our emotions as, as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my talk, I, I started with the armor. Yes, but this yeah. is what we were, You know, this mm-hmm. is reality. You know, it's not just profession, it's our life. Yeah. Uh, and and. Um, I envy people, maybe maybe they are not honest, you know, saying no, I'm not wearing armor. It's not possible, you know. We are wearing an armor since our childhood. And I tell you, you know, I'm honest, I'm wearing a armor, big armor, you know, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I had a fantastic childhood, you know, mm-hmm. too, beautiful mm-hmm. parents, very happy. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you go on and it's,
2: it's life, yes. you know, and yes. you try to
5: protect yourself without knowing that you you don't only protect yourself, but you numb yourself and you close yourself. And there is this study, very interesting, saying that um, uh, it's part of aging, you know, Mm -hmm. and you grow up, you mature, and that middle age crisis, Uh that we all talk about middle age crisis, that that both women and men (laughs) have in different ways, is yeah, actually the realization of your armor yes. and then you what a minute you know? mm-hmm. and it's usually between 30 and 50 and you you say no this like, this is heavy you know? mm. uh, I, cannot, I cannot live like this mm-hmm. I, I just need to be uh, kind to myself yes. and you know try to take out my breastplate, you know, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. be, and, and try to be seen as I am.
0: So this brings me on to the thing that I wrote. One of the first things I wrote down that you actually mentioned was about courage, and you said that courage comes from the heart, and that's the breakdown of the word from core as the yes, root. That's the root called. And I wrote down courage versus aggression because I think too often we mistake aggression for courage. And perhaps that's part of the armour, you know? If you feel that actually to have courage you have to be aggressive, you're going to need armour because you're going to believe everyone's coming at you, right? Right. But um, but if we try and dismantle that a little bit and take the, the aggression side out of it, maybe we could all get on a bit better, you know? it's just an idea that's, true. That's,
5: true. No, no, that's, that's perfect i like this i like this and uh, yeah of course if, if you are aggressive you expect a reaction yes yeah or expect the other to, to close mm-hmm. and disconnect um, but what we what we want in, in, in medicine in our profession in a uh, patient is connection yes. and uh, understanding and be, un- be understood mm-hmm. uh, see and be seen mm-hmm. so um, yes so we need to dismantle this this, this armor and, yeah. and, 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 and do the first step mm-hmm. because empathy means opening up but would being vulnerable mm-hmm. means okay I take the first step yes risking. It's like love, you know. Yeah. This is the maximal expression of being human. Mm-hmm. I take the first step, mm-hmm. I'm honest, mm-hmm. you know, I'm naked. Mm-hmm. Taking the risk to be rejected yes. or denied. Mm-hmm. But this is a
0: risk. And lastly, just I'll, i won 't take you for too much longer, but one of the other things that you mentioned, which I thought was really important, was um, about warmth versus competence and about the, and I guess when patients come across you, they want and the warmth comes from intention. So if you have you know, people can respond to the fact that you've got good intentions and there are always going to be times where whether it's a communication thing or something that happens or a complication that things are not going to go the way we intended. It's 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 unfortunately a fact of what we do to one extent or another. And ultimately that made me think that actually if we're busy kind of negating the warmth, but trying to prove that we're competent, then that's an extra barrier. That's an extra load of uh, of shield and armor, as yes. you put it. Yes. Yes. I think I think um, to to some extent
5: patients give competence for granted. Yes. What and, they, and they should,
2: Hopefully,
0: that's what they should uh, be able they to. They should. Be. Be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what
5: what they want is work, mm. and this is also physiologically what human beings mm-hmm. uh, judge. Firstly, we're overconfidence, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and they and they expect you know that we spend time with them, you know we, we listen to their main concern, mm-hmm. um, and that we explain and we give them a plan, mm-hmm. you know a very simple plan, you know a way out mm-hmm. their from their position. Then competence you know is given for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they just expect, you know, from us to be kind, human, mm-hmm. to give them uh, a plan and uh, to reassure them because you know from the interviews with patients I've done, you know, uh, the the um, the common uh, feeling they have when they wait for their first encounter with a surgeon is they are, they are, they are anxious. They don't sleep. They, 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 they don't have a. They cannot plan their future. So they, they are in a terrible state of, of shock. you mm-hmm. know? And um, and the best way we can do is to make them comfortable, at ease, and and uh, to relax them and to give them a plan. Even if the plan is not, perhaps, surgery but to try to organize. So I'll give you an example if I can, if I have time. So I had this patient, um, and this is a typical example of high-risk patient, Mm -hmm. okay? So this is um, an 83-year-old, very fit, um, with a small tumor in the the upper lobe. perfect surgical candidate, high risk because of age, Mm -hmm. Uh, but nowadays we can do minimal invasive, you know, resection uh, and mi- minimize this. So I started to explain to this patient, you know, the uh, surgical procedure, what surgery will entail, you know, um, and uh, that he must need to stay in hospital for a few days. There may be some risk that you know some complications to go home with a chest drain etc. And suddenly he stopped to say, you know, doctor, you know, I really um, appreciate that surgery probably is the best treatment mm-hmm. for me, but you know, what you said, that you have to, I have to stay in hospital for four or five days, you know, it's possible. You know, I, I am the only carer of my wife with Alzheimer's, yeah. so I cannot afford to stay in hospital more than one day, yes. because my main concern now is my wife. Yes. So. Can I ask you if there is an alternative treatment, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a non-surgical treatment, so mm-hmm. how do you react to this? If you act as a, you know, the, the, the right surgeon, yeah. you know, ah, oh, no, this guy is asking me to refer him to the radiotherapist, yeah. I don't want to lose
0: yeah.
5: another patient to the radiotherapist, or you react as an, an empathetic, a human, mm-hmm. you know, yes. how you should react. Mm-hmm. And you say, of course there is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because there is radiotherapy. You are mm-hmm. 83, yes. and this a reasonable option with really yeah. a small tumor. Mm-hmm. And this is a daily, uh, um, out, out of hospital, I say, a mother, mm-hmm. uh, treatment that will allow you to stay home, to remain home with your, with your life, and. But at the end you know of course it's not a surgical candidate he was very grateful he still called me and he says you know thank you very much for you know having organized the meeting with the radiotherapist." so it was perspective taking because you you kind of felt understood the concern of the patient and it was a compassionate behavior because because you organized uh, the, 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 the appointment with the original therapist and the treatment, surgical treatment. So that's a perfect example. Of, Absolutely. Of a,
0: so being able to facilitate, facilitate the right treatment for the right patient. It might not always be what it is by the by the book, but it's by the patient, and that's ultimately what that's what. By wait, wait, wait.
5: suppressing your surgical ego. Yes. <laughs> yes. And,
0: uh, you know, and that's, right. and that's that's the thing. It's you know that's what what we do isn't is not just about operating you know it's it we we make decisions and we make decisions in theaters based on the anatomy we're looking at and we make decisions in clinic based on the patients that we're looking at Um, and it we need to be able to use all the tools at our disposal and one of those tools is empathy and being able to acknowledge the human being in front of as well as the human beings that we are, right. <laughs> ourselves, and we work my, with. My final thought is,
5: mm-hmm. um, many things we, we are born with, empathy. we are born empathic or not, mm-hmm. but this is not true, mm-hmm. you know, because empathy can be uh, taught and learned, mm-hmm. and there are several studies showing that by um, uh, teaching, you know, even online courses, but teaching empathy, you can improve... Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, connection with the patients and how how uh, em- empathic with your empathetic score you know as graded scored by the patient so so it is it's, it's a very important notion because because it is sometimes often neglected you know in our medical schools or you know uh, training uh, as a doctor as a surgeon uh, so this should be
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much. It was an excellent session. Everyone was really engaged in it. Uh, You had some excellent questions from a lot of really senior consultants. So I was like, they're coming up with some excellent questions here. Um, And so I, you know, you can just tell from that that that's just like a a litmus test of just how engaged everybody was in that audience. So hugely appreciated, and uh, and thank you very much. Thank
2: you. All right, so
0: here we are at SCTS twenty twenty two, and I'm joined by some of our medical student committee here. So I don't know if you want to introduce yourselves and you can tell us what your role is in the committee and also a little bit about like where you're at medical school and what you know what year you're in and and make us all feel really old. So go on.
6: <laughs> Hi everyone, my name is Holly. Uh, I'm a final year medical student at
2: Bristol University, mm-hmm. and I am the medical. School- Officer in the Excellent. Excellent. Uh, hi everyone. So my name
7: is Josh. I'm the communications lead for SCTS uh, InSync. Uh, I'm a fine year over at Queens, so I've been very hands-on here mm-hmm. in Belfast, being here for the last five years.
2: It's been great
0: fantastic well yeah great to have you both joining us on the podcast um and uh, and yeah i mean i know you guys have been really involved in not just the going to the student day and attending some of the bits and pieces at the university um but also you've been really involved in all the running of the actual conference and um, so yeah what sort of things have you been doing like in the day-to-day organization of the actual uh, meeting
7: um, so it's been quite mixed which has been nice so um i think as i was based in Belfast, i sort of kind of took the lead in especially on the student day on the Sunday so that was great to kind of make sure the speakers were organised and get to meet the students that were attending um, and then in between that we've been kind of helping run the, the actual talks of all the conference delegates so handing out the mics making sure the rooms are set up and the, the Q&A is working well um, and then kind of beyond that we've been doing a lot of actual running of getting bits of tech in the right place and making sure the right person's in the right place but it's actually been a really really good experience.
0: How about you Holly?
6: Yeah, I mean Josh has done an incredible job with helping lead the show in a way, mm-hmm. being all of that. and like you said, literally
2: lots of running. Um, down the stairs, technical issues and it kind of makes us feel a little bit very incompetent outside of medicine. Yeah. Despite <laughs> already feeling
6: incompetent in medicine. You know, trying to work out the registration systems and
7: not really making sense, but
0: yeah. oh gosh, I feel like you guys have just had a crash course in what it's like to go and work in hospital, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, fantastic. So, uh, in terms of your student day, so you had a fair few things that were set on yesterday, weren't they? Um, did you have any particular highlights?
7: Um, I think for me so it's the first time we'd ever I mean it, as a group it was our first face-to-face mm-hmm. SCTS it was the first one we were doing as a the committee mm-hmm. um, and I think we'd managed to do one face-to-face event before this and one of the things we kind of took away from that is we wanted more um, kind of one-to-one time mm-hmm. so it's great having all the careers talks where you get you know the top tips from every you know registrar or trainee that's got in we wanted to make the, the portfolio clinic yeah And yeah. you know and it worked really well so every kind of student got five to ten minutes where they were just one-to-one with a uh, a younger trainee so kind of early years of the training mm-hmm. program was still quite fresh from the application mm-hmm. process. Still
0: enthusiastic, yeah. not worn down, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, no cynical yeah. people allowed. Yeah. And,
7: <laughs> I mean, I was quite stressed about making sure that everyone got a slot and a time,
2: mm-hmm. and
7: then, you know, I think we were overrunning decided so to go do something else, and I came mm-hmm. back and the, the regs were all still chatting just as a big group. Yeah. And it was just great to see that everyone was kind of, you know, making the most of it. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, that, that was a highlight for the show
6: I, I was based in the button
2: Lab for the entire day. Oh, right. Um, so, well, initially
6: in the beginning I was um, in registration. So, mm-hmm. so for me, actually, was the highlight was registering such elite people. All the names you in the books. Registered Mr. Simon Kendall and I didn't have oh, any yeah. idea until he passed because I was so immersed in the job. <laughs> <so>, um, <laughs> it Van Dorn and, yeah. and it was just a yeah. people closing
0: no, no, elite people, they're yeah. elite people, I think they'll like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and then you had a sort of a few lectures that were sort of set up as well, and I saw that one of them in particular was particularly interactive and got you wearing Santa hats and all sorts of things, so yes, yeah. uh, what was that? Um,
7: yeah, so this was a talk given by um, Mr Nick Chilvers, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, he, he spoke to me before being like, you know, what's the participation like in the group, they a lively bunch, and I was like, well, I'm not sure... And I only found this out this morning, actually, but he said he does a little test mm. where um, he gets people to stand up for different reasons, you know, who's here to be a cardiac surgeon,
2: mm-hmm.
7: who's here because their mate paid them
2: to be, um, <laughs>
7: and you can kind of gauge the interaction with the group. Mm. Um, and then this kind of progressed so he got four volunteers and you know, two people were going to be the, the heart mm-hmm. pre the Ross procedure. Oh, yeah. And then he had, you know, one person being the surgeon, one person being uh, the valve that was taken, you know, from a, a cadaver, mm-hmm. and then in a, in a series of movements, mm-hmm. we suddenly fixed this uh, broken heart. Right. The Ross procedure, and it was now beating and singing. Um, and you know, good. silly little things like antlers, reindeer antlers, being coronaries, and. Um, banana pancake being mm-hmm. the cardioplegia for your brain and if it blew me away it
0: would fantastic yeah that sounds yeah. like a really good way of kind of um, getting you to uh, and also to remember key parts of it because yeah, you know exactly. we say the word cardioplegia and you might be like yeah you know that maybe goes into this but actually when you fix it up with banana pancake you know uh, yeah. I would remember You're,
7: that yeah, like <laughs> yeah. and I mean I, I kind of came away with it being like I could maybe talk someone through a Ross procedure right now ooh that's so brilliant hopefully it's that, that whole uh, yeah. Uh, integrated learning, I think it stick with
0: Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And what about did you see anything to do with thoracics was Yeah, so there was, the... a real, there was a real there was real
7: good mix. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think we had so Mr Nathan Burnside and he was talking about, you know, the role of robotics and I think mm-hmm. that's what everyone gets really excited about, especially students. It was it was just great to mm-hmm. see the, the realms of where you can go through. I think mm-hmm. that you know I think lots of people Go to cardiovascular, I think, it's just heart surgery, heart surgery, heart surgery. And it's, it's great seeing that there's so much more in the foot as well as the training. Right
0: now. Thank you very much for all your help and your support and in running the meeting. Well yeah. done. <laughs> yeah,
7: no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm here today, we're in the wet lab, uh, kicking off the student
8: day. Can um, we just have a few kind of things, what what, what were you expecting? I was ex- I'm not expecting to see any of this to be honest, I was expecting a few talks, I was not expecting to, be able to see it myself in person, but to have all these trainees and knowledgeable people go through it step by step and show you actually in real life rather than reading off a book or a paper is absolutely amazing, actually get to visualise it. Amazing. And- it? So Google, what kind of things do you think you'd take away from the wet lab session? So what kind of things? For example, I've read about cox maze before, but to actually see it, where it's different points of it, and actually be able to ask those questions is great. Mm-hmm. So, and for example, the aortic dissection area, mm-hmm. I was actually able to visualize it and see what other things can be done. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's been amazing. So those are my two one so far. Okay, amazing. And is this something that you think, you know, should be at all conferences for students? Absolutely, yeah. because it helps students who don't even get a chance from perhaps in cardiac theater mm-hmm actually see it for themselves because not everyone is fortunate enough to get an SSEP on elective there. Brilliant. No, thank you so much Coco.
7: Enjoy the rest of your day.
8: So, hi there everyone.
7: I'm here with Anna, who's just been in our portfolio clinic. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about what that involved?
9: So I wasn't really sure what to expect. I've never done a portfolio clinic before, but I went in there and I was just very honest with what I,
0: where I am in my career at the moment as a student and what I was hoping to sort of maximize out of F1, F2, because I'm about to start. Um, and it was great to also chat to current trainees about their experiences and what they sort of wish they'd known at my stage. And it was very reassuring as well because um, the person I was talking to also at my stage didn't know what he wanted to do
7: so okay that was great
6: so this is day two of the SCTS annual meeting in Belfast and I am joined by two medical students who would like to introduce themselves
10: yes uh, my name
8: is Sion I'm a fourth year medic at Manchester and my name is Gokul I'm also a fourth year medic at Manchester and happy to be here
6: great lovely to meet both of you so day two how are you finding it
8: it's been awesome. Uh, it's been a lot of talks today, uh, less hands on stuff like yesterday, but I've just been enjoying my talks, particularly the ones in cardiac surgery and minimally
11: invasive surgery. Yeah, um, I would say the same thing as well. I actually like the exhibitions. There's the Da Vinci robot that you can play around with, which is fun. The posters and the level of research that we saw today from the other students and the other trainees was very top notch. And so it's been a very nice day so far.
6: Okay, so this is day two and I'm here with four lovely medical students and they're just going to quickly introduce introduce themselves and then we're going to ask them some questions. Hi, I'm Olivia, I'm a third year from Queen's Belfast.
12: Hi, I'm William, I'm a fifth year from Imperial. I'm Ben, I'm a fifth year from Sydney, Australia. Uh, My name's Elijah, I'm a fourth year at Cambridge.
6: Amazing, so guys, the first question has to be what have you found to be the highlights of the conference so far? So today we've got to play with quite a, some of the new equipment like the AI and the VR machines, which have been good.
12: Uh, being able to present some work and like, research stuff is always great.
6: Tell us more about that work.
12: Um, so I've um, presented some findings from my BSc project, which is sort of nice to see the fruits of your labor.
6: I heard it was awarded as well.
12: Oh, uh, yes. Um, I won the Pat McGee um, Medical Student Prize.
6: Amazing. Well done on that. Thank you very
12: much. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed most listening to the expert lectures. I'd say from um, some of the cardiothoracic uh, surgeons around Europe, so it was a very good perspective from uh, my student perspective. I guess, yeah.
6: Obviously, have you flown all the way from Australia?
12: I did. Yes, it was a very long flight, but very much worth it. I think, and I'd recommend any other students from long uh, distances away uh, to come next year. I understand it's in Birmingham, um, so it's definitely a, a good place to come and meet a lot of people you know all these three people next to me are uh, like people I hadn't met before so it was uh, great to meet them and uh, hopefully we'll continue that relationship into the future
7: Uh, yeah highlight has to be hearing about all the research going on from surgeons across the world and country as well as kind of getting some experience and some practical stuff in the simulation village
6: this is my first surgical conference so it's just been good getting an idea and I'll definitely be encouraged to come to next years
12: I think how welcoming everyone is like because we're medical students with typically at the bottom of the packing order but sort of everyone's welcoming, like even up to consultants to talk to you and have mm. discussions with you? Um, I think the first thing I noticed, I was just shocked at the the, the, the size of the conference. Like mm. all the different, uh, the ICC in Belfast is massive and all the different rooms and lecture theatres that were being used. I kind of thought I'd, I was going to present in, you know, a, a small hall. It ended up being quite a large auditorium and, um, you know, it was nerve-wracking, but it was, it was uh, shocking in a good way, I'd say.
6: Mm. And with like high thoracic, Um, Regis and the doctors and whatnot. Have you found there to be like a difference with them here versus back home? Are they different in any way?
12: Um I hadn't actually noticed too much of a difference. Um, they were very very knowledgeable and you could tell there was a lot of collaboration between them. I think it was, it was very interesting seeing uh, panellists and speakers uh, discussing things with each other and uh, using each other's knowledge to ask questions. Like Even in my presentation one of the, the doctors asked another colleague uh, to add to his question before asking me and it kind of just made me think there's a lot of collaboration here and that's a similarity to Australia I'd say. Okay, is there any
6: difference?
12: Um, are there any differences? Uh, people are better dressed here, I'd say. Um, and, but otherwise, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty similar. I mean, we're not that different down under, so. <laughs> Very had nice. To say now. Yeah. <laughs> had to say now. Great, thank you. And how about yourself? Uh, yeah, I think to echo what the other said, I was sort of
7: taken aback a bit by the size and such a wide range of different topics and work being presented. Um, and yeah, as well, just really impressed and amazed by how friendly and approachable everyone is and how open, even quite senior surgeons, sort of, so respect within the field are, uh, quite how happy they are to have discussions and answer questions and sort of have discussions about work and different opportunities, I guess. So yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. Cool.
6: Well, thank you very much, all of you. for the nice rest of the conference. And hopefully we can see you next year as well.
0: I've just been part of the, uh, just seen the plenary session uh, for research at the SCTS Annual Meeting
10: 2022. Um, and I have with me. So I'm Liz Darlison. I'm a consultant nurse at the University Hospitals of Leicester, uh, the founder of Mesothelium UK and current CEO. And then just on top of that, because today has been about research, I am the Division 1 clinical lead for cancer in the East Midlands Clinical Research Network. And you've just
0: given a a fantastic talk all about how you have set up the charity Mesothelioma UK, which is then... It basically expanded and expanded and expanded um how did you first sort of get the impetus to set something like this up because obviously it's, it's a huge challenge you know we're looking at it retrospectively thinking wow this is incredible but it takes a lot of motivation to to set something like this up and keep it going
10: yeah I guess so but first of all that's really kind of you to say yeah. um so it's been a long journey so it didn't happen overnight um I think the crucial thing that it has been completely and utterly immersed in patient need, patient and carer need, and but also uh, clinical need. So we've worked hard to ensure we're embedded in the NHS and um, we have worked hard to complement clinical teams around the country to try and ensure that patients are better able to navigate the NHS. Because we do have, you know, some of the best um uh, clinicians, treatment and care available for mesothelioma in the world um, some of the best research studies we've heard about those today, the only country to do randomised control trials in, in surgery for mesothelioma but you know we need to help patients to find that expertise and so That's really, you know, with with a team of people, um, you know, obviously who've um, been involved with the charity, that's, I think, what we've managed to do is to be very patient-focused, very supportive clinicians, very loyal to the NHS, and just help patients navigate our wonderful healthcare system, really
0: which at times needs some needs some help yeah, navigating it's I mean, not always easy
10: exactly exactly and yeah. you know i think i you know i said in my presentation that mesothicoma patients um you know it's, it's, an, it's an, uh, an incurable disease so you know that it is a life-limiting disease and along with navigating our nhs which can be very complicated they're also navigating um, the benefit system mm. and because Um, it is considered an industrial disease often related to exposure in their workplace and they're also navigating the legal system and any of us you know absolutely you know feel horror Mm. at the thought of navigating any one of those yes never mind all three so um, I think you know a genuine need there for people um, and we've just tried to step up to that to that need really well, it, you've certainly stepped up. Oh, well,
2: <laughs> you've
0: certainly to stepped, stepped up. Thank you. Um, and um, how did you learn how to set up a
10: charity? Oh, no. <laughs> honestly, honestly, that has been yeah. a bit of a trip. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's a lot of trial and error. Yes. Um, you know, you don't realise until you step outside the NHS um, how, um, forgive me for saying it's how cosseted uh, we are yes. in the NHS. You know, you don't have to think about, you know, the IT provider mm-hmm. or... Or governance training, or uh, data protection, and um, and so we were part of the NHS actually for a long time. We were a Macmillan Cancer Support service for five years. Then we've always were always hosted by the University Hospitals of Leicester, who we're indebted to. But as the charity grew, we had to grow our wings and become independent. So we actually physically. Uh, became an independent charity in 2008 and we moved out of the NHS into our own offices about five years ago um and and, um so it's you know it's making that step you know just pinch your nose jump with two feet and find good people to work with good people and you know the operational team we've got 17 staff now in the operational team at the charity um none of them or very few of them have any NHS background they all come from other walks of life Mm -hmm. and um you know that's been invaluable in making us a very um uh cost-effective uh functional virtually paperless which has been amazing yeah no art lever folders in our office um so that we, no, that's an improvement oh on a lot my of the NHS. Gosh, yeah. So you know, and yeah. so it's been actually working you mm-hmm. stepping out the NHS and working with people mm-hmm. to put together a charity that is fit for purpose, a business that is fit for purpose. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I, I can just see all the different hurdles you must have had to go
10: through in that process yeah. and to have achieved what you have, I think is, yeah. is truly. But it remarkable. is finding good people to work with. Yes. You know, I've got a really good team so mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about yeah. you know, paying the utility bills yeah. or um Uh, tendering for IT providers. Uh, That's, you know, I've got a good team.
0: It sounds to me like you are, you know, obviously you've got all the background in in the kind of nursing side and all of the clinical side as well and you're also a businesswoman that's what it sounds uh, to me yeah. like <laughs> I mean
10: you, you have to have a certain amount of business oh, acumen yeah. you also have to be a bit of a risk taker yeah. um but i have to say you know i've hung on to my clinical practice really uh mm-hmm. carefully mm-hmm. because nothing you know we all entered healthcare um because we have that mm-hmm. desire to care for people and nothing quite cuts it like it does on a one to one basis mm-hmm. so i love Being in a clinic room Mm. with a patient with mesothelioma and doing everything I can to help that individual person and their family to get the very best they can. Um, So I've hung on to that. I don't think the charity needs me to do that anymore because we've got a head of nursing and a team of nurses and our board of trustees. You know, we've got really eminent clinical people on that. So it doesn't need me to. But I need to because yeah. that's what makes me tick. I completely understand. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's you, it keeping
0: hold of what's motivated you in the first yeah, place is, yeah, is the key. Yeah, keeping grounded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the themes I've noticed throughout this meeting in various different sessions is just how, and, and I think you've really encompassed this, particularly how, how being driven by the patients, being driven by what their requirements are really helps inform. All the sorts of research priorities that we should be aiming for, as well as the sorts of services that might not be readily available to
10: them. There is, uh, there's no law that means that you're not a patient today. You know, and there's a fine line. And the NHS and the experts we have at this conference, we don't know when we might come to rely on them. The trainees that are in the room today, you know, they they may save you know your my life in 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 the years ahead. So so I think you know. Uh, we, we are all by default a patient mm-hmm. at some time yes so um you know and we, we must never forget that mm-hmm. you know and we should all strive to um to to make healthcare the best we the very best we can yeah care for each other as we would hopefully hope yeah like exactly to be cared for. exactly indeed
0: indeed well thank you so much for joining me no, really interesting yeah <laughs> and, uh, no that's really <laughs> all kind the best. of you thank all the best you very much So here I am at the SCTS annual meeting and I'm speaking to Dr Laura Dobson who's one of our consultant cardiologists at Withenshaw Hospital um, in Manchester in the UK and she's just given a fantastic um, talk uh, and uh, on behalf of the British Heart Valve Society as well Um, and uh, what's your role within the British Heart Valve Society?
13: So I'm currently the programme chair um, for the British Heart Valve Society so we run events throughout the year aimed at um, people from every subspecialty that are involved in Heart valve disease to try and bring um, care together and improve um, care for p- patients across the UK. Oh, brilliant. And, and what, one of thing you mentioned actually was that there's been
0: the BHVS mm-hmm. British Heart Valve Society uh, blueprint that's like a network. Um, I guess it's, is it recommendations for yeah, what people so, should do? Yeah.
13: Um, so a couple of years ago, you can you can see the blueprint. It's on bhvs.org.uk forward slash blueprint, and it's a really useful document for anyone involved in heart valve disease that wants to advocate for improving um, network, network-based network care across their um, mm-hmm. patch. Um, it, it covers all parts of heart valve disease, so looking at repair rates, um, uh, how we run valve clinics, but also has some information about the endocarditis MDT and how to set up that kind of service uh, within your local network. Mm-hmm. That sounds really interesting. Um, and one of the other things you mentioned was that it's there's some
0: improvement of, of the heart team, improving survival I think it was to 50% um, for patients. That's
13: right so there's been multiple studies now that have shown that um, developing an endocarditis endocarditis team or endocarditis MDT has been associated with a 50% reduction in mortality uh, in in those places where it has been set up and that really reflects the fact that the management of endocarditis is incredibly complex for the majority of patients uh, and they all present in very different ways requiring very individualised care um, and careful planning around surgery, careful planning around antibiotics and careful planning around imaging. Um, So yeah, it's really the major advance that there has been in endocarditis in the last 20 years and we're really trying to promote that as a concept through the BHVS to improve um, uh, the mortality of patients with such a devastating condition. And one of the things I suppose that means from the point of view of Cardiac
0: surgeons and cardiologists is that we need to be really receptive to people out in peripheral hospitals who may not have the access to knowledge and services that sometimes we take for granted that we've got access to the MDTs, etc.
13: Absolutely. So um, COVID has actually done us some favours in this regard. So um, the endocarditis team concept has always been a hub and spoke model, whereby there should be a hub in the surgical centre with a um, availability of the team to the whole network that uh, for which it covers. Um, Now most regions are able to offer teams based meetings so sharing of data is much easier and it's much easier to call in both for your individual patient advice and for just for learning really to understand about this really difficult patient group uh, and we've found that uh, in locally at Withinshore there's been much more engagement since that has been a, um, a teams-based approach uh, and would be one of the sort of benefits of uh, some of the changes that have been made through COVID. Yeah, absolutely and there were a couple of things from your talk which I thought were really um, really
0: great and, <laughs> and I thought oh mental note um, one of them was just that pointing out that always the vegetations are on the low velocity aspect of the valve and i thought oh yeah of course (laughs) they are but it was the way you 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 said that so it's all lvot or then the atrial side
13: yeah so so the, the problem with endocarditis is it is a huge spectrum and you can see all sorts of strange things with this condition. It can almost do anything within the heart once it decides to wreak havoc. Mm. Um, but generally, in simple endocarditis, we will see the vegetations to accumulate onto the low-velocity side of the valve. So in a mitral valve, we'd see it on the left atrium. In an aortic valve, typically, we'd see the, the vegetation on the left ventricular outflow tract side of the valve. Mm. That's
0: brilliant. And, and I also thought it was really interesting, you were saying about how you might not always see infective endocarditis on your first TOE and that sometimes it takes time for those things to develop even when other body organ systems and blood cultures will be showing signs that there's infective endocarditis.
13: Yeah I mean we we especially see this in the case of prosthetic valve endocarditis or in staph aureus infections. Sometimes you might see something really subtle which looks like a little bit of brightening of the root, aortic root or something like that and you're not sure how significant it is. You put the TOE probe down three or four days later uh, and there's an enormous root abscess. So it's really about having that thorough clinical evaluation to decide on your level of suspicion and always repeat imaging if, if you're not sure yeah that's and, and I thought there was some really interesting case that you mentioned about a person
0: who had uh, a VSD and actually ended up with infective endocarditis in one of the areas where there was sort of a jet that was flowing into the RVOT so it's just I thought it's one of these things that actually people might have unusual cardiac presentations which means they have unusual infective endocarditis presentations yeah as well.
13: so exactly so yeah. you will always see the endocarditis in the place where there's some sort of abnormal shear force within mm-hmm. the heart so this patient was a patient with a restrictive jet and it was obviously shearing onto the um main pulmonary artery wall and that's where the endocarditis and the vegetation developed Uh, and you'll see this in all sorts of funny valve lesions we also saw a case of aortic regurgitation and vegetation where the um the vegetation from the aortic valve was kissing onto the anterior mitral valve leaflet and we saw another vegetation which we call a sort of kissing kissing lesion on the underside of that uh, mitral valve so you've just really got these patterns of things and making sure that you look really carefully for for abnormalities well that's fantastic thank you so much
0: it was a really good session um and yeah thank you very much for joining us uh, here I am. I'm do- just having a wander around all the exhibition stands at SCTS and um, I'm just here at the BD stand. And do you want to introduce yourselves? Yeah. So my name
11: is Matab. I'm the field sales lead for London for BD. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. And the products, we've been having a little look and I had a look yesterday evening. I went along to one of the meetings uh, um, and these guys do all the chloroprep stuff, which we uh, we, you know, we love the, the tango tan that yeah. patients get. With. It makes us Lost feel better. <laughs> <and Donald laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, it definitely makes me feel better when I, when I know I've covered everyone in orange. That is, that's, a, that's, it's a reassuring thing. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the products, but one of the things we were just talking about, I thought I'd just flag up for everybody is the impact that COVID's had on the, on companies when you're trying to introduce things. So, mm. so yeah, if you tell us a bit about what your experience was when you, you know, the company kind of got bought and then you had more products and then you yeah. had
11: nowhere to use them. Absolutely. So I think. Yeah, the great thing is, is i mean claw has mm. been around for quite a while so even coming up to covid there was still that kind of repeat use that was that, i mean mm. with the, the the heritage is there it's been used for many many years mm. but just before we had uh, the acquisition of bard and the bard portfolio that then became part of bd mm. um so within our remit the biosurgery and infection prevention team uh, we had uh, a sealant and a, haem- a range of hemostats mm. that then became part of our portfolio so as you have as sort of any keen salesperson you've Mm -hmm. got new bits that are coming in you want to show it to the world Mm -hmm. went out there had some absolutely phenomenal feedback started Mm -hmm. sort of getting the ball rolling with procurement Mm -hmm. um, and and sort of the the evaluation processes got some really good traction and then covid hit us Mm -hmm. and unfortunately it was just then a case of what can we do remotely how can we still try to progress things along and I think after a few months we all realised that it was just a bit too much of an uphill battle because you you can't demonstrate things online in the same way that you're there in theatres with the consultants and of course it was a no-rep policy for for quite a while, so just getting back to it.
2: Yeah,
0: I suppose it's, it's a sort of thing where there are some things that, for example, the techniques that we've been able to practice in kind of a simulated fashion. But a lot of these products are looking at actively like hemostasis and, and, and also there's the, um, surgical sealant that you were telling, um, me about was a thoracic sealant that's, that's come Absolutely. in. And of course, you know, actually you really need a ventilated patient or someone who's, pre- to, who's, who's having a surgery. Obviously yeah. ventilated patients wasn't so much of an issue, but unfortunately, you know, the yeah. surgery side was. Yeah. But I mean, more yeah. so
11: with something like because historically, when, when we started the initial discussions mm-hmm. with our customers and surgeons, sealants have had sort of a bit of a bad rep for a few years, mm-hmm. especially in London, where there's numerous studies that have come out that showed really using a sealant versus not using a sealant. Mm-hmm. The air leaks were resolving themselves. Yeah. But the issue was it was because it wasn't a true sealant being used in the first place. Right. It was a haemostap. Okay. So we're the only product which has FDA and CE clearance right. specifically for air leaks. Mm-hmm. But, again, the proof's in the pudding. So what we really wanted to do was to get in there yeah. to show them, go through the correct techniques. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was just absolutely impossible. I mean, rightfully so. I yeah, mean, we, yeah. we definitely needed to be away. Mm-hmm. So it went from very much being out there trying to implement uh, we're going to take a step back and whatever's in theaters yeah. let's figure out how we can still continue the training and support that we would normally do yeah and we created kind of lots of online programs but mm. yeah from from new product perspective absolute mm.
0: nightmare so just from from my interest point of view how is a sealant different from the hemostat that's been kind of around okay and
11: about? so um a hemostat is obviously designed to uh stop bleeding Mm -hmm. whereas with the air leak sealant, it's to stop obviously the air leak with um, one of the products that's currently being used uh, it composes of uh, a a chemical called PEG so polyethylene glycol Mm -hmm. when it's mixed it looks lovely it forms a lovely kind of rubbery layer which when you initially apply it does work in trapping air Mm -hmm. and was sort of consequently being used as an air leak sealant Mm The issue is as soon as you then close it looks great in theaters as soon as you close and that patient goes onto the ward during the rehab process they cough it just does not have the mechanical integrity to yes. then expand with the lung and would end up breaking and, mm. and, and hence the, the kind of the mixed results whereas yes. what we have in our product is an additional component in uh, human recombinant albumin right serum albumin, it gives it additional binding points so it still goes on in that lovely layer mm. but it can actually contract and relax with the lungs. So we quite often spray it onto a balloon and we'll show the kind of mechanical integrity of
2: it.
0: Oh, that that would be a nice demonstration, actually. Yeah, I can imagine, because that's the thing you sort of spray it when the lung's not fully inflated or something and then you see it all crack if it's something that's not very exactly. flexible so i think that's right.
11: that then kind of you then started mm. to lose confidence in the product and yeah. that's where we came in and said look guys no we've got yeah. half of it here you yeah. are familiar with this but yeah. it really does work but that, yeah. Yeah, that requires a face-to-face discussion and, yeah. and, and cases and patients yeah
0: really, yeah, yeah. well it sounds it to. sounds very interesting for sure i mean um and uh, oh, i was just having a chat um yesterday evening um about all the kind of the the surgical site infection side mm-hmm. of things, and really the chloropepin There's a whole bundle that's being used at St George's, yeah, um, uh, and one of the surgeons from St George's was giving a really good presentation mm-hmm. about how they've reduced their SSI rates and things like that. Um, and it was, I mean, I, I, I you know. I, I fully appreciate that tissue handling is is vitally important, mm-hmm. but equally, I, I was interested in the um, in the kind of is that something that's gentamicin mm-hmm. impregnated like a collagen? What happens to that when you put it in? Does it dissolve? Does yes. it break down? So um,
11: the great thing about mm-hmm. uh, the, the the meeting yesterday was mm-hmm. what what we don't want do, um, to do, what we try and do slightly differently from other companies is not just turn up with a box of products mm-hmm. and be like, right, that's it, that's part, that, that's our thing done. Mm-hmm. Is we really want to work with the consultants that we're we're working with on a long term basis. Mm-hmm. So when we initially met with uh, the customer speaking yesterday, he set out his long-term goals of mm-hmm. reducing SSI, and we know it's not just about claw prep. So um, the product that you're mentioning is, is Collatamp, It's not yeah. actually a, a BD product. It's yeah. actually another company. Yeah. But we've just found that actually, as as that kind of care bundle, it works fantastically well. So. Yeah. Um, in terms of the degradation of it mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that, that's kind of I don't have the knowledge on that yeah. um, so I think it's definitely some of the guys are floating around yeah, but yeah. Um, it works really well in the sense that yeah. it stays in place long enough yep. so I think the equivalent um, that was mentioned yesterday was just using rankomycin powder. Yeah, and I think we discussed that as well. where we did. As soon as you put that drain in, that disappears. Yeah, I, I think we, we can probably see it
0: dissolving and <laughs> floating down. I I appreciate you know a lot of people <laughs> really like it, but the reality yeah.
11: is there there is some evidence to suggest so that is, is the absolutely. case. There is yes. some, There's some yeah. mixed results with it as yeah. well. Then, but I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah even even um sort of anecdotally and, and clinically seeing the results that have been ch- achieved with the bundle you, you can't deny that everything has yeah. its impact on there and i think is, is great in yeah. that sense
0: i think the thing that it showed to me was especially you know that that he was particularly dealing with quite a, a group who are particularly at high risk of sternal wound yeah, infection so it's bilateral mammaries people who've got pre-existing diabetes not always brilliantly controlled so so there was a sort of a, an elevated risk and even despite that he was getting very good results so absolutely. so that's that's, that's got to be um, that's definitely got to be noted um, and there was one thing I don't know if you'll be able to um, tell me more about it but there was that um, that sort of photographic way of communicating the pa- pictures of the patients yeah, that was abs- being Absolutely, introduced. so yeah.
11: it's again, it's one of the things that our, our strap line and it's mm. not sort of me giving the bargaining bump but our, <laughs> sp- our strap line is genuinely advancing the world of health, so <laughs> we are absolutely all about trying to find what is the next step and what we can do to assist further, so <laughs> recently our company has been in uh, in conversations with a company called care <laughs> um, who now have a photo at discharge system for, for every patient <laughs> and we're still learning about it, I know Noel's working around so able to to give you a little bit more information, yeah. but um, from what we're hearing so far, really, really great stuff. Where yeah. it's it's every patient they've had a fantastic update. Um, it saves those patients from having to take days off to come back into yeah. hospitals, just have their wound looked at for mm. for literally less than five minutes and go home. Mm-hmm. They're able to take a picture on, on any camera. They have the software which is then used to enhance whatever image they take. So mm-hmm. if someone's not sort of Spielberg esque with their angles, mm-hmm. they're still able to, to to send across exactly what is yeah. required. Um, But they've also sort of taken it that step further, so it integrates seamlessly with with patient notes. Mm -hmm. But there's artificial intelligence that actually recognises certain wounds which are looking a little bit out of the ordinary and highlights those as a priority to say, actually, there might be something brewing here, Mm -hmm. and notifies the reg or whoever's responsible in the team to Mm -hmm. to have a look at it, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as, obviously, the rest which they look at later. So really, really clever stuff. There's somebody who's very, very clever sitting in an office somewhere (laughs) developing all of this, but it's great because it falls kind of ideally into what we like which is it's it's all about surveillance you you just you don't know what your true infections are like because Mm -hmm. nobody gets infections Mm -hmm. until you look and it just it really falls into that sort of uh that that remit of ours of look definitely we we need to encourage looking to make sure that it's Mm -hmm. resolved rather than it being dealt with gps who might not be as as yeah. qualified or uh, as, 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 as much of an expert as you yeah. in that
0: regard. And certainly part of the message was that, you know, there's that we're seeing the tip of the iceberg and that actually by intervening with, you know, a greater proportion of patients that we yeah. pick up, that ultimately hopefully we can prevent those, you know, hopefully minority of cases that then go on to develop. Um, so, no, I thought that was really interesting. And, I mean, I, I think uh, there, there's... A way to go in terms of organising ourselves virtually and making sure we have not only just the telephone but also uh, images and video, etc. And it seems like a really a step in the right direction, really. One of the silver
11: linings yeah. to COVID as such. Yeah, I think yeah. because it was that attempt to try and keep people away, it's a discussion which is resonating with so many trusts now to yeah. say, well, how can we? reduce no, 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 no. that interaction if it's if it's yeah. unnecessary so the photo at yeah. this shot, really works
14: um
0: how do you spell isla care because i said oh, does it start with an i or I it it? Is isla
2: isla
0: I S L A I S L A yeah i was thinking is it which way is it yeah no don't it <laughs> just just a starter to start the google search that'll be <laughs> useful brilliant well thank you so much for talking You're to very me welcome, it's a really interesting time session time. Thank, thank you, you. I am joined by some of our physio team who've been in the Enhanced Recovery Plenary Session delivering a lecture um, and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'll stop, yeah, stop. So my
14: name's Zoe Barrett-Brown, I'm team lead physio for thoracic surgery at Royal Papworth Hospital. And I'm Michelle Gibb. I'm the clinical specialist physio thoracic surgery at Glenford
15: Hospital in Leicester.
0: Oh, fantastic. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you both is how do you... Because you clearly you produced the presentation, you did the presentation together and you've been working together closely on all these guidelines. How did you kind of get to know each other? How did the collaboration
14: happened <laughs> so we were just um literally talking about that with um, a couple of other colleagues it was mm-hmm. actually from um one of our cu- he was a current registrar mm-hmm. um ed he was our registrar at papworth and then went off to glenfield obviously it now is. he's consultant um, yes. surgeon at glenfield mm-hmm. um and he was actually the one that put us in um, contact with each other because at papworth we've done an eras program for probably eight years now mm-hmm. um and at the time glenfield when he moved to glenfield there was yes, no era i was
15: quite new to my role as well mm-hmm. so he'd I said, like suggested zoe and she was fantastic yes. and yes. It, we from there we we kind of exchanged some emails and i went to Pat was to stand yeah. the day with zoe to see mm-hmm. what they do and then zoe came up to glenfield and we've just kind of from there and yeah. i think the scts has really helped us network each year yeah. as well yeah. and um yeah yeah, oh, well, that's really great. Well, I
0: mean, what a success story yeah. collaboration. That's yeah. brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think we've, so we've just been in the era session and there's been lots of talk about ways that we can optimise patients and ways that we can measure sort of optimisation. Um, and particularly, um, you guys were talking about some of the things that really helps from the physio point of view, but not just from the physio, like the whole patient point of view. Um, and importantly, what sort of extended roles that you've been taking within it. Um, uh, and, and I think um, one of the things that really struck me and I was just mentioning it actually was that you have said well actually we see the patients maybe like a cu- at least a couple of times yeah. a day and I guess that puts you in a really strong position um it, to be one of the key parts of the whole failure to thrive kind of you know net of trying to catch patients and making sure that you know you notice when there's deteriorations
14: yeah that's definitely um what we see at Papworth um that Although the surgeons do obviously try their best to come and see their patients once a day Mm -hmm. and they're very, very proactive at uh, Mm Papworth, but it might be at 7 o'clock in the morning before they go and get scrubbed up for theatre. But actually physios are on the ward all day, so from sort of 8 o'clock till 5 o'clock at night um, and we see them at least twice a day and I think that just shows sort of our insight to how that patient's either developing Mm -hmm. or deteriorating Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we've been able to um, guide our practice in terms of the enhanced roles, whether it's prescribing chest X-rays, also the drain management because we see them so regularly. The chest drains may be at zero constantly, but actually yeah, then definitely. the air leak spikes while they're exercising. The consultants don't see that side yes. of things, um, and with that sort of us seeing them regularly, we can have that input, um, and you know that guides whether the patient's going home because the drain can come out, etc. So I think drains are definitely one, but I think definitely. clinical deterioration is another. Mm-hmm. um key aspect that we can then we can tell if they are deteriorating that much quicker than the surgeon because yeah. previously if we only saw them once a day we might see them at nine ten o'clock that morning and actually might not see them for then a 24 hour period and their chest completely has changed where we're seeing them more regularly we can actually definitely um, and I think we're in a good position to escalate their treatment
15: as well. Yeah. We can know so we can escalate their oxygen up, we can think about if it I mean it's touch wood we're quite lucky it's not mm-hmm. like niv particularly too yeah. much i don't think at um, patwood or no. glenfield mm-hmm. but um but we are in a position we can do that mm-hmm. some of our advancing roles so at, at glenfield we as the physio team we can undertake ear blood gases so we can get a quick reading if we think sick mm-hmm. gives some of our lvrs patients if they're retaining or yeah. um or if they're in respiratory failure mm-hmm. um and like zoe is spoke about in the presentation about the non-medical prescribing so looking mm-hmm. to the future like where our role expands as well which is really exciting yeah. Like, yeah,
14: definitely from a medication point of view. Um, previously we'd had to wait for either the surgeon or the registrar to come out mm-hmm. of the theater because problem is SHOs aren't around like they were um, and they want time in theatre they're there to learn Mm -hmm. um, and actually getting them to come out of theatre to prescribe a saline neb or a salbutamol neb or a hypertonic Mm -hmm. it it just is a waste of their time that Mm -hmm. actually um, advanced clinical practitioners can do and we've got advanced nurse practitioners within the cardiac um, uh, team but not within thoracic team and that's where from my myself's point of view is where we wanna be yeah. um, rather than an advanced nurse practitioner, advanced clinical practitioner.
0: Yeah, it just shows how you can flex your roles and yeah. and different um, you will see all people get different windows to the patient pathway and we yeah. should really be, you know, taking those opportunities yeah, to just, yeah. you know, yeah to just find the time when we can intervene yeah. isn't it you Definitely. know yeah rather than you guys getting a call at, at 11 p.m hello
14: yeah i can't say yeah. for Glenful, but from a Patworth mm. um thing, since we started eras our call out rate from yes. an on-call physio point of view is next to minimal and i shouldn't say i'm touching wood yeah. absolutely um, yeah. we'll get called out tonight but yeah. um it's very very minimal i don't yeah. remember the last pe- person we got called out to a frassic yeah they tend to be the chest medical patient not actually the surgical patient Anymore, and I think ERAS has definitely yeah. helped
15: with that. I um, think our, ri- our call-out rates have dro- dropped dramatically as well, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. And um, I think that wider understanding of what physio can do, and just having more presence in the day mm-hmm. of seeing those patients a second, a third time, mm-hmm. if we really think they need it. As yeah, well.
0: that's interesting. It makes me wonder. And you may or may not have the answer to this: is just whether that sort of also correlates to a reduction in ITU readmissions? Because I would have thought that, you know, what happens is, you know, these patients tilt up, and then the next thing you know they're readmitted yeah, then you've yeah. got the whole cycle of you know invasive ventilate you know yeah. possibly even you know pressure related issues for patients post lung surgery so is that something you've noticed i don't so, know so
14: yeah we yeah. um our readmission rate to ITU from a respiratory mm-hmm. perspective is next to minimal. Mm-hmm. um and actually it's readmission because of poor urine output yeah. or something that um cannot be controlled on the ward it's actually not a respiratory aspect
0: yeah i like what you say it's sort of like um you know you've you've tried to opt Optimise them for everything avoidable that you possibly can yeah. and then maybe there might be something else yes. that, that is the yeah. issue, but at yeah. least it's not that yeah, much. But is, actually, yeah, but actually our readmission
14: yeah. rate from a um, respiratory point of view is mm-hmm. next yeah. enough in at Papworth. Yeah. yeah, we're really lucky. Well, I'd,
0: I'd say that is very impressive <laughs> and I would, I suspect as well like what a recommendation for enhanced recovery and for geo working and and for all you guys having the opportunity to to use all the skills you've got
2: yeah you know absolutely. and be
0: supported in that and that that's definitely you know the way we should be heading for everybody. I think we
14: all just want yeah. to have career progression yeah. and yes. as a physio, Um obviously different from a doctor's perspective because you've got so many different ways that you could you can go with in your career whereas once you sort of spec- Within cardiophratic surgery, mm-hmm. you're sort of limited, so it's just finding ways to enhance our careers mm-hmm. but also the patient pathway as well. So, yeah. then yeah. combined, and so. I think from the plenary session this morning
15: from the president's, um, when he was speaking, mm-hmm. I think that the, we are finding that us taking on these roles, we might be able to allow training doctors more into theatre yeah. more yeah. and support with that. Yeah. So, it just that progression. I think overall, our patients get better care because we're all sk- more
14: skilled across the board and, and we can't take it away from the surgeons. <laughs> yeah. We are very lucky at Papworth. They all three of my consultants yeah. are so pro ERAS. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when I first started Papworth ten years ago it wasn't that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the buy in from every single angle needs to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we definitely have had challenges along the way from moving to hospital, new staff, etc. Even every day uh, you know, we've got new staff within Physio and it's a huge battle yeah. to get them on mm-hmm. board with how eras should be yes. and it's you know if you've got the buy-in it's, it's a success yeah
15: definitely. yeah I sh- oh, sorry i should say as well at glenfield our consultants are really supportive and the mdt as well they're just a great team to be part of so yeah. absolutely it's really important to have that buy-in definitely yeah.
0: yeah well that sounds i mean it sounds like it's a it's beneficial for everybody yeah, um yeah. and and it is a culture change like someone mentioned you know was talking about that as a as it's a really um you know that's sometimes the most difficult thing to to, to but you guys are proving that it's possible and that you know these great results can be achie- achieved yeah, so yeah, yeah. so well done Thank you. well done
2: <laughs> <Thank
0: you. laughs> talking to one of our invited international speakers and his father as well he's come along for the for the fun of the conference and also to come and see northern ireland and um uh, and obviously i'm talking to professor whitlock who is from um canada and i understand you are in hamilton ontario is that right yes yes uh and can you introduce yourself i'm
5: martin whitlock richard's father uh, originally from Sheffield in England, but I am Irish <laughs> and uh, now live uh, 800 metres
8: from Richard in uh, in Hamilton. <laughs> oh,
0: fantastic. Oh, well, that must be quite nice. So get to see each other quite often yeah. and things. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And, and how have you both found the conference?
8: Oh, it's
1: been fantastic. Uh, you know, the conference. Uh, first of all, as an an, an invited speaker, I mean, mm-hmm. they've been very, very kind. Uh, it's been very well organized. Uh, the sessions were engaging. Uh, I think the, the level of the talks were, were exceptional. Um, so, and also the, the social events. I mean, this was the first in-person uh, conference. In quite some time Mm. and uh, you know to arrive you know to have trips uh, arranged to go to the causeway and you know for the social events at night to Mm -hmm. get together with friends that we haven't seen in over two two years that we collaborate with in in research it's been great and uh, you know as you mentioned uh, I brought my father on this trip he's originally from the UK and uh, um, you know he's gonna go visit his uh, brothers in Galway uh, now actually we're we're headed off now and uh, um, you know I wanted to kind of show him what I did on this side of my career
0: yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, what do you think? <laughs> oh, so
1: I'm
5: very proud of him and uh, really enjoyed the conference. You know, it's, uh, you know my, my background is metallurgical engineering. And, oh. you know, I've given technical papers, but I've never seen uh, coordination and, and kind of... Uh, Dedication that, that I've seen uh, here. And yeah. I wish I had that in my, my time
0: <laughs> yeah. when I
5: was uh, performing those type of technical uh, papers I gave. Great. Yeah. And yeah. did
0: you get to have a wander around the exhibition centre and see yes. what's going on yeah, now I as well? Yeah, I actually use a little
5: uh, robotic... Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. So I'm thinking maybe a second career change oh, and, I, I don't I, see why not, you know. It. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you can sit down on the robot, which is another yeah, good thing. fantastic. Well, have a fantastic time Very in Galway great. and I hope that you get great weather as well um okay. i'm sure it'd be lovely and okay. thank you very much for coming yeah, yeah. Uh, we've okay. really really enjoyed it okay. so right. thank you
2: right,
0: thank you Caitlin. here just at the scts annual meeting <laughs> With some of my favourite people, uh, yes, yeah. Here we are. we a whole load of people from Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. A whole in all sorts of well, I guess it's all advanced nurse practitioners now, yes. isn't it? Oh, yes. I was going to say, but from so many, from different backgrounds and, and in different specialties as well. So between you all, you've got, well, in fact, let's introduce one by one, and then you can tell us your background at
3: it. Hi, I'm
11: Alistair, um, Cardiac AMP. Um, I worked at Liverpool Heart and Chest for four years and I've worked at the Brompton before that and Show before that. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: so a really wide range of experience Yes, and a, a wide range of, of teams that you've worked with yes. so you know he doesn't judge us at all. He <laughs> can contrast and compare so we have to be very very careful. And then Una.
9: Hi, I'm Una. I work at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital and have been there since 2003. Uh, background just under 30 years of intensive care uh, clinical lead for intensive care and then progressed to doing the MSc in advanced practice and now um, I was in a uh, cardiac advanced practitioner and now I'm a naortic advanced (laughs) practitioner
0: yeah and and she says it like a, oh I'm just in adver- I don't know, yeah. know. a but she basically runs the show is what I should just just reiterate that okay and now oh Mandy Mandy, Mandy,
10: Mandy
16: I mean do we only need one Mandy welcome <laughs> there you go <laughs> it's true <laughs> <laughs> oh hi I'm Mandy Walt um I'm Well I was originally trained as a thoracic advanced practitioner, I've been in the job for 11 years, Um, absolutely love the job, set up lots of services, um, chest drain clinic, ward attenders, now we're doing lung cancer follow-ups and I'm now the um, lead for cardiothoracic surgery, uh, helping all the others drive them forward. They will be presenting here next year at the SCCS, lots of our new um, innovative uh, projects we've got up and running at the moment. Um, so I'm going to pass you on to our newest member of our team now.
0: So last but definitely not least, <laughs> and hopefully we'll be
15: coming to many more SCTS yeah. conferences in the future. Yeah, I've got like 40 more years in the NHS before <laughs> I can retire, so you'll see me face around. <laughs> so yeah, I'm Naomi. I'm the baby of the group. I've just joined the team. So I've worked on critical care uh, for six years and now I've gone to outreach and then joining in the... I'll well, be cardiothoracic, dual trained, so
0: that'll be cool. AMP? Yeah. Excellent. Well, so there you go, a huge, huge wealth of experience between you. So, how have you found the conference? Any highlights? Absolutely. Yeah.
16: Fantastic. So, I've been coming to the conference for, for years, and I can see how much now um, there's much more nursing and allies health professionals that, that turn up. Um, it really is a mixed uh, group of. You know, delegates these days. Um, it's a very friendly conference. Um, lots of networking. You know, uh, we've met lots of lovely people. We sharing ideas um, and also having fun outside the conference. Um, yeah, we went to the ball last night. We were, I've never seen a dance floor as full as that dance floor last night um, I actually stood on somebody's chair with me stiletto um, it was that busy but it was honestly fantastic if anybody's out there doing cardiothoracics and wants to learn they need to come to the next year's SCTS in Birmingham awesome.
15: and also the wet labs mm-hmm. like just seeing things up close and like learnt so so much even being in the job Alistair was there he's been doing the job for well, I don't know over a decade <laughs> Um, we got to practice suture putting little chest drains in, like bronx, um wedge receptions, mini trackies, like well, we did all sorts, it was amazing. So yeah, we we learnt so much and everyone's just got so much knowledge and we're just learning from each other and it was just an amazing experience. And it was my first one, but I'll be definitely trying to come back every year, so yeah. That's brilliant. And you were
0: mentioning to me yesterday as well about sort of
15: seeing how people do wedge resections
0: using yeah. staplers and then kind of correlating that to sort of when you see people with like fragile lungs and you know yeah. actually this person's got bad COPD and things and just... How clinically it helps inform you yeah, on what you're seeing yeah, and, and managing. So, so I think we really take that home and just try and give everybody in, in all the sort of regions and multidisciplines. This is how valuable it is to have that exposure. Definitely I'd
15: like to do more of it. Really, right? like, yeah. Like I think lot more sessions. Yeah,
0: there you and, go. There's, there's, an, uh, you're yeah. Absolutely right. We should, we should definitely hold on to that. So, what about you guys? Do you want to go uh,
12: well. It was my first time here, uh,
11: Surprisingly, because I've been in cardiothoracic for 20 years, shame on me. Um, but no, I've actually loved it, networking, seeing what other centres are doing, sharing ideas. I've, I've learnt a lot from this one time, so I'm very pleased I came. So this is
9: my first in-person attendance, I've presented previously, so it's so much better to be here in person, meeting people, networking, learnt a lot. Um, following a um, presentation that I gave, setting up um, nurse-led small aneurysm clinics for uh, new patients. I've had a lot of interest um, generated from other advanced practitioners and medics as well. So definitely well worth coming. Get your um, application for your subscription and join us. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you next year. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for, for you know coming and having this chat with me i really appreciate it and it's interesting you mentioned us like sometimes it's difficult to get leave isn't it like it's yeah. difficult to get funding and it's difficult to get leave and that's actually one thing i just wanted to make clear is that there are
9: uh, opportunities for funding so we've all um, applied via the SCTs for funding and we're very grateful for the funding that we've received to enable all of us to attend um, so thanks very much
16: the other yeah, that's thing I want like to mention though um, is that we, we saw lots of excellent presentations, but well, there's people out there doing work that they should be presenting yes, here. Yes, yes. You know, and I've, I've had my eyes opened again this year today, about there's people amongst our team who aren't here that we're going to bring next year and they're going to present work that they're yes. doing. Innovative yes. stuff. You know, we've got um, our AMPs putting pick lines in, yes. art lines, yes. neck lines, ultrasound. You know they're starting to do um, echoes mm-hmm. i know um brighton have been doing echoes so we'd love to see them present next year yeah. so we can learn from them um it's all about learning from each other because the patients are the ones that we want to you know we want patient safety and we, we want them all to do well. So everyone we share the best yeah. practice, then yeah. we achieve them. Brilliant.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And and uh, and yeah, you do uh, I don't know. were there any congas on the on the dance floor oh, right. this year? Work,
9: but somebody,
0: somebody
16: started, started it without oh. the conga. I, she was, <laughs> human. The conga. Yeah. <laughs> I did not take part. in
0: the back Yeah. The, well, maybe it's time to pass the baton uh, on that one. It's okay. <laughs> someone else can start the conga. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, really exciting to see you all here. Um, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm just here at the uh, SCTS annual meeting uh, 2022, and just some final thoughts from some of our exec committee who have endured a tough couple of years, or maybe a bit more than that, of organising and having obviously plans disrupted, etc. So I'll hand the mic over, and if you want to introduce yourselves and, and give a few reflections on how it's gone.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Caroline. I'm Sri Rathnam, I'm the Communications Secretary. It's been a fantastic three days in the SCTS. It's Great to see colleagues again face to face. Our meeting has been postponed twice and having virtual meetings last couple of years. And it kicked off with a great day to the Giants course away, away moving around with friends. And Mother Goddess gave us very sunny weather and the scientific <laughs> content has been fantastic. And to see the crowd still buzzing at 3.30 when the meeting finished was fantastic.
9: Thank you, Karis. Noreen Morjani, President-elect. It has been amazing catching up with everyone after the few years of not having a physical meeting and to see everyone's positivity and it's just reassuring to be in a specialty where everyone's got so much enthusiasm for making patients' um, outcomes better and doing things better for us as cardiothoracic practitioners. Um, It really is exciting to see the future of cardiothoracic surgery and it's um, Great thanks to Meninder and the meetings team for putting together a fantastic conference. And um, we look forward to catching up with everyone again at next
11: year's meeting. Uh, Hi, Simon Kendall here, uh, President. Uh, We used to take meetings for granted. And uh, and after a three-year absence, uh, we've uh, reinvigorated the joy of seeing each other, shaking each other's hands uh, and being able to listen uh, to each other's stories of what's going on. Uh, there's been a sense of family here, there's been a sense of belonging, and I think a sense of optimism that uh, we're going to recover and we're going to do better, and we're going to support each other. So thank you to Menindra and the team, and uh, let's, let's enjoy meetings in the future. Thank you.
2: Well, thanks again
0: listening to this episode and i hope that you've enjoyed it um again any feedback questions or comments um you can email me at scts at gmail.com and there's always twitter which is at podcast underscore scts and thanks very much for joining me